Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Here is your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. Uh, today, I'd like to welcome Jonathan Hollyfield to Breaking Down Barriers. Uh, welcome, Jonathan. It is good to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation, David. So let's get down, my man. Yes. So uh, same here. I've been looking forward to this. I would, however, like to kind of set the stage uh, and start first with the book and we'll kind of even go further back after that. But you have written a book, The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, how how demographic trends and innovation can create economic prosperity for all Americans. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and, and the origin story and, and kind of your, your central thesis? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'll get through this because I'm a former lawyer, David, so I can talk quite a bit. Um, you know, probably like you in this respect, care deeply about community, always have. And for the early part of my career, I was doing the traditional things someone like me would be doing in support of community. What we traditionally call community development and neighborhood development, civil rights, education, all of those things. Thumbs up. It's excellent, needed work. But at the same time, my group, and this was a lot younger then, uh, we knew we weren't moving the needle. And we only had one response, David, try harder. So we just double and triple down as young people with a lot of energy and just try harder. Wasn't until I got a call from the Chamber of Commerce in Cincinnati asking, would I be interested in helping the Chamber figure out its role in the new economy? Like, Huh. Let me call you back. So I start digging. Now, remember, I'm one of the guys coming on the scene. I'm one of the 40 under 40, all the this future leader up to all the hallmarks of one of the people coming on the scene. David, I was absolutely clueless. What was happening right in front of my face in my city was utterly invisible to me. And that's when the epiphany happened. Oh, my. If we want to move the needle, we have to do needle moving stuff in the needle moving areas of the economy. Completely changed my trajectory. And from that moment on, I brought, oh yeah, I did call him back and say, yeah, I'm your man. I'll take that job. Uh, but I brought a lens that was informed by community, neighborhood, civil rights, education, and so forth. I just wasn't a brand manager at the big uh, consumer products company in Cincinnati. I had a different lens. And that really informed formed my experiences and what became Cincy Tech as the founding executive director there really informed the framework around inclusive competitiveness, connecting underestimated, underserved populations, humans, and communities to the best, the needle-moving areas of the economy and not only to the sectors of the economy that, quite frankly, do not have the elasticity of opportunity of the broadly defined tech, innovation, knowledge economy, fourth industrial revolution, etc. It's all good work. 
But if you want to move the needle, we got to do better in these areas of the economy. This, uh, I'll just say that there's so much to unpack here that we usually do a 30-minute podcast. But if it's okay with you, we're going to go closer to the 45-minute versus the 30-minute because I don't think we can capture everything you're saying. We might have to bring you for a part two. Uh, <laughs> just because there's so many lines we can go down, right? Since yeah. Tech and the yeah. work that's happening with Startup Cincy right now, right? Kind of the foundational that, that's layers. That's right. right? Yeah. There's so many places we can go. But I'm going to keep to a central theme today and then we'd love to bring you back uh, for uh, part two, but uh, let's talk about moving the needle. And yeah. if you could help break down, I think you and I speak the same language. So what mm-hmm. might be obvious to us might not be obvious for our audience around what does moving the needle mean? And if you could tie that back to generational wealth creation and kind of help us understand why the metrics we measure are so critical because if we measure the wrong metrics, we are going to end up solving the wrong problem, right? And a lot of people don't understand the difference between income versus wealth. And, right. And so if you could help kind of start with like what really breaking down, breaking down what really moving the needle is for us. Uh, I think this can be you know, a great way to share your story, but also kind of help educate our audience on something that might uh, not be an everyday conversation. Absolutely. Great, great question. And as you say, the turnabout is fair play. A lot to unpack there. Um, moving the needle is really boiled down to economic mobility. And underneath that, you can call it social and economic mobility, the ability to be upwardly mobile in American society. Now, underneath that, there are certain opportunities that provide far better chances to achieve economic and social mobility than others. Historically, underestimated popular humans and communities have been relegated by community infrastructure, opportunity, etc., to the lower performing areas of the economy. My point, and I need to be clear as a bell, this is my point, does not denigrate that work. It is needed. But there also must be a complement to that work and connect to, again, the broadly defined for this discussion, knowledge and innovation economy and all that attaches there too. Um, Economic mobility. Let's take the concept and today's notion of equity, getting a lot of play in a lot of places. Um, But almost all of the equity narrative is focused on fairness, of course. But as we know, equity also means something else. It means ownership. To have an equity stake in your home, business, or relationship proverbially is to have an ownership stake. And when you look at equity through an ownership stake lens, you begin to look, huh, if economic mobility is the goal, what should I own, own to achieve that mobility? And it begins with skills preparation and workforce development. You own those skills. And to stretch the metaphor unmercifully, 
ownership of skills is almost like the good old days of real estate investment. These are appreciating assets. They can continue to grow over the course of your entire career and you own them and will realize all of the return on ownership of those skills. So let's say now you have skills. Well, that puts you in position to own fixed assets, right? Houses, property, IP, what have you. And the combination of ownership of skills and fixed assets, it's not the only way to economic mobility, but it is probably the surest proven way (laughs) to economic mobility. And that's what we're talking about, uh, David. That's that's brilliant. Uh, I'll I'll just kind of uh, sprinkle this with some of your opinions. I'd like to get your opinions on some of the current state of affairs, but mm-hmm. I want to go back and do a little bit of kind of retrospective look back at some of your lessons over your incredible career, and also then say, okay, you know, uh, because I feel like in some instances we're moving backwards. If you mm-hmm. think about some of the the conversations we're having today around equity in the sense of equitability uh, versus equity in the sense of ownership uh, with what happened with uh, the the firm out of Atlanta that was looking mm-hmm. at just providing capital for black founders, right? And how there is a lawsuit against them because they think that it's not being equitable to other uh, majority populations, right? And thinking about this this concept of we were trying to help solve a problem, but now the the framing of the problem is under question, mm. right? What is your opinion on that? Yeah, I, I think you are uh, digging deep. Those are the deep waters. Uh, in many respects, though, I think there are ways forward that don't seem to be getting merit reviews. As a personal matter to level set, uh, I believe in symmetry. If you make a point, the strongest point, if it's true going forward, it's also true going backwards. If it's only true one way, then that undermines the strength of the point. And in America, we do have a constitution. We have a history that we all know. But I believe that within the framework of that constitution, the the trouble is a constitutionally protected right. And that's the right against racial discrimination for the most part. That's a constitutional right. There is almost nothing in the constitution about economic rights. So can we be more creative? Most poor people live with other poor people. And if it's about uplifting and providing opportunity to underestimated, underserved, historically excluded populations, then there there are ways to frame that. And even if you don't uh, live in those areas, if the benefit of the investment inures to the benefit of underserved communities, that's another way to get at that. So I think that in some ways, and you got to feel me on this because this will, you know, cause some consternation. But in some ways, the race designation 
has been a crutch that has limited our creativity. There's one factor that causes a constitutional question. All of this other possibility to be creative, to uplift, to provide opportunity equitably across the board, uh, I just don't think the nation, the field, and even economic development field has been as creative as the latitude that we have provides. We've been, we can be endlessly creative and we just haven't been. And I think there are ways to get there. So if I can summarize uh, directly, uh, part of your thought process here is that we have been a little lazy in the solutions we need to put forth uh, that that can be uh, that can that can check a lot more boxes. Uh, essentially, I I believe that. My gosh, David! Again, not your first rodeo because you summarize you summarize that one. Uh, you're a lawyer as well. That was pretty good <laughs> summation, my man. But really, we can do better. Yeah, we really can within the construct of the American experience and the Constitution. Yeah, we can do better. The field can do better. Yeah. So let's jump back to your book. And I want to ask you, uh, because what I really like about what you've done compared to uh, some of our audience and some of even our speakers, uh, we look at it in more kind of narrow segments like entrepreneurship by itself or workforce development. But I like how you kind of looked more broadly at the economy and all the drivers, because uh, when you look primarily at just entrepreneurship, I think you fail to acknowledge that there are truly skills and capital and resource requirements that not all people have been given. And and so I tell people that you cannot become poor in the process of becoming rich. Right. As in, you cannot go into entrepreneurship and lose your home. Right. right? And a lot of people look at entrepreneurship as a play on grit. And it's not a play on grit because timing is not... Uh, dependent on how your willpower, right? Timing is a market timing. So when you have this holistic approach to uh, creating an inclusive economy, can you explain what you think are the key drivers that help us uh, invest in the right places to get to wealth creation and get to uh, equitable economies? Yeah, and... Let me level set from this end some basic statistics. They're pretty fresh between 2022 and 2023 from the U.S. Census. Just a couple of markers here. Women, Hispanics, Blacks. Women, total number of firms, 12.3 million. Total revenue, 2.1 trillion. Average receipts, 175,000. That's over half the population, Right. Hispanics, 4.5 million businesses, 620 billion revenue, 140K average receipts. Blacks, 3.6 million businesses, 224 billion in revenue. Average revenue of total firms, 62,000. Okay? 3.6 million black owned businesses employ 1.3 million people. How about this for 
job and wealth creation, a real goal. Only of those uh, 3.6 million, only 141,000 Black-owned businesses have employees. Well, create a million jobs. How about a million Black-owned businesses have one employee? Want to create a million more jobs? How about a million more (laughs) Hispanic-owned businesses have one employee? How about another million? Over half the population, increasingly the most educated part of our population, women, 12.3 million businesses, 2.1 trillion in revenue. What if it was 3 trillion in revenue? So you go from 9 or 10% of GDP to 15% of GDP. I'm not, a, I'm not advocating women are 50% of the population at 50% of GDP. No, 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 no. It may get there. That's fine, obviously. But the point right now today is to look at the all kinds of opportunity. What if women-owned businesses, instead of 10%, was 15% of GDP? What if Hispanic businesses added another 2% of GDP? What if you doubled Black-owned businesses from 1% of GDP to 2%? Imagine the ripple. Now, these are reasonable objectives, but I don't hear a lot about that. I hear a lot of keywords and word salads and that sort of thing. But on that ground, I just don't hear a lot about those kinds of North Stars and the things that I believe that will nurture uh, that kind of development and what I call inclusive competitiveness policy. Policy is the great enabler, both public policy in terms of state, local, federal government, And more importantly, private sector policy, local businesses, philanthropy, influential actors at the local level as well. They make local policy. How about new education leadership, right, that prioritizes not just STEM, but STEAM with an entrepreneurship focus, not just the act of learning these disciplines, but their application for market impact and business creation. How about intermediary organizations in local communities? Unfortunately, underestimated communities still look like war on poverty. We've had several iterations of our economy since the 60s in terms of innovation ecosystems. You saw the rise of Silicon Valley, Route 128, Austin, uh, Research Triangle, and others, the first movers. Then you have a second mover. Well, maybe inclusion is the third mover and a higher risk tolerance for policies, practices, and actions that may fail. Seems like when underestimated communities fail, they get one at that. When others fail, there are reasons, and they often get up a second and a third at that. So we have to raise the risk tolerance, and I'll hold there now, but certainly one can go deeper. That's such a great topic, and I did not know where you were going to go with this, uh, but since you went there, we're going to go a little bit deeper, yeah. uh, <laughs> which is fantastic, right, to think about. And I thank you for those metrics. Those metrics have uh, are such a great reminder of the realities on the ground, no matter what the talking points are. The realities on the ground, and there are so many components to it. Just take Black-owned businesses, right? If your average receipts are $62,000, what is the credit profile of that business, right? 
And so let's dig, just go down that path. And because that's right now top of mind for everyone, right? Because the question we're all asking ourselves, okay, we need to get more blacks into the game. We need to get more Hispanics. We need to get more women. We get it. What can we, and again, it's, yes, we need to get first bat, second bat, third bat. We need to get them to be able to swing at multiple uh, pitches. But more importantly, the question is, what framework do we deploy to give them the best shot at success? And you mentioned something that's critical, right? When we think about this, why do we frame it as that you give somebody an opportunity as long as there is a return on that opportunity, right? So for example, let's take capital. You give a business owner capital only if you think that they will be able to repay you versus, in fact, you know, I've talked to some CDFIs that are very proud of the fact that they have never touched their loan loss reserve. And for me, I'm like, why are we using taxpayer dollars to set up CDFIs if that's the metric they're measuring success on versus saying as a CDFI, if I can grow my community, because that barbershop is a watering hole for that street, right? It's a corner watering hole. People come there and there is a social, not just economic impact, there's a social impact to that community when that barbershop goes out of business. And what is the economic value of that social component? And should we only measure success as repayability versus measuring it as an investment? We still need to do due diligence. We still want to use taxpayer dollars well. But can we have different metrics on how we measure success? So could you kind of talk then about the underlying resources that allow the first, second, and third chances? And what do you think are the key components of helping more Black businesses set up, right? And when I think about the, the, the idea that to be rich in this country, you already have to be rich, there might you know, be some merit in that statement in the sense that it's not that you need to come from money to have money. It's more about the fact that if you come from money, what conversations are you having at the dinner table, at the kitchen counters? You're having conversations that build the, the basic components of knowing how to talk to clients, how to go and invoice them, how to collect payments. Like those components are critical to starting a business, no matter how good your idea is. If you don't know how to manage your cash flow, you don't have a business. And so somebody that comes from a business family has a better chance just from the fact that they have the fundamentals, right? So, uh, and I know I might be asking too many questions here, but I hope you get the sentiment of where these questions are going. I think so, and they're fabulous questions, and frankly, you're leading our discussion in the areas that, frankly, I think the economic development field needs to more thoughtfully take up as well. First and foremost, there is no magic, okay? Let's dispense with that idea. We seem to know that for some some of us and seem not to know that when it comes to others of us as well, but there is no magic. This is a long-term trajectory with patience, just like we have in the first and second movers of this new iteration of our global economic development. We were patient and we had lots of failures. That didn't stop. So we need patience and recognition that there's no magic. Secondly, how are we cultivating um, an ethic 
of wealth creation and ethic of entrepreneurship. I think Harvard did a study maybe a few years ago, found that um, while we focus on the fancy T-shirt young person as the entrepreneur, high growth entrepreneur, job creating entrepreneur, et cetera, they found that the successful entrepreneurs of high tech companies or tech companies was like 42 years of age. So perhaps instead of almost expecting a 21 and 22 and 25 year olds to save the economy, let's embed an ethic of entrepreneurship that informs how you live, work and play. And that can down the road become the basis of your entrepreneurial dream as well. Also, underestimated communities can't miss this point. In addition to an infrastructure that looks nothing like innovation ecosystems and intermediaries and conditions creators, in underestimated communities, they are overwhelmingly program-driven. Obviously, you need good programs, but you also need good conditions creating intermediaries that will go to the state capitol or city hall or et cetera to generate resources for the economy or the sector or the cluster. Those functions are non-existent in underestimated communities as well. So I think we have a third mover advantage. What have we learned from the first movers? What have we learned from the second movers? And now at a point in history where this imperative, this inclusive competitiveness imperative has never been more important in our national history. For all of our talk, let's be clear. After World War I, America emerged as the unchallenged global economic leader and has held that number one position since then. Well, the world was different. China wasn't a market economy. India wasn't a market economy. Hey, China made up their own form of capitalism. Um, Europe was in shambles. The continent of Africa is emerging out of um, colonialism. Now, guess what? You got six, seven billion new competitors. They're smart. Everybody's smart. We're smart, they're smart, and they're now competing on the same field. So whereas we won the post-World War II era with one hand tied behind our back, it's time to bring the second hand into the fight, and this is inclusion. So the nation needs it, and we need to do better by it. And the alignment of the imperatives has not ever been more pronounced as it is right now. We can't win as a nation. We can't continue to compete. That will ultimately degrade quality of life, et cetera, et cetera, unless we bring this other hand to the fight. Let me ask you a philosophical question. Um, uh, It looks like you are a deep thinker in this space, and so you probably have thought about this. Uh, The U.S. is unique. In, in one sense, I come from India and mm-hmm. in most parts of the world, uh, the populations are pretty homogeneous, right? That in India, 90, like I did my uh, genealogy test, I'm 99% Indian. 
that one yeah. percent is a margin of error. I am hundred percent and 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 Dravidian. It's that uh, yeah. it's one of the ancient civilizations. Like we never left where we started, mm-hmm. and so some of the challenges that Americans face is uniquely American in that it's a true kind of melting pot of all of these different races and cultures. And what is our strength is also our weakness in the sense that if you don't understand how diversity and inclusion brings value, then you are not actually going to be able to make it a strength. And then you look at it as a weakness or the perception is that you're looking for homogeneity when there isn't any, and that creates additional strife, et cetera. You've thought a lot about this topic and specifically around the economic value of it. What policy or what set of policies do you think we're missing uh, today that can help drive more inclusivity? You know, your point is well taken. Um, Let me offer this and start from here. I'll, I'll revise your remark in this way. Diversity and inclusion can be a competitive advantage. Just having it for the sake of having it doesn't make it a competitive advantage. And so it really begs the next question is that can this thing, this unique American experience that is inherently certainly one of the among the major economies, perhaps the most diverse nation on earth, among the major economies, can we convert these, many of which are underestimated human assets, into sources of national competitiveness? Because the nation needs them right now. With that said, uh, uh, David, those sources and policies I think, while in this respect, we've had struggles and successes at the public policy level, I wonder if we're at the point to really focus in on private policy and things that are important. I'll give you you an example. You're a strategist and you do work all over the nation and you're a thought leader all over the nation. Point to Three, strong economic inclusion strategies and name them. Well, I will say that there is, uh, without naming the policies themselves, I'll say that the government understands this point. So when you think about the, the programs that are coming out, and like you said, rather than saying any particular race or ethnicity, pointing to communities that have traditionally been marginalized and bringing them, no matter what they look like, it could be rural, it could be urban, right? That doesn't really matter. But if you look at the Tech Hubs program that Cincinnati Mm -hmm. also applied for, uh, that Tech Hubs program has a very strong focus on underserved communities as a strategic Mm -hmm. advantage towards innovation and national security, right? That can be an economic policy in that, if you want to qualify for federal dollars, you need to be very intentional about how you bring all of the players to the table to qualify for federal investments. And really, at the end of the day, all they're doing is helping you identify areas of opportunity and competitive advantage that your community has that you haven't thought about. 
Absolutely. And let's just take tech hubs as an example, way up here. I'm less talking about it. But um, what I wonder about tech hubs is, will all the usual suspects get all the financial benefit and just hire more people into their organizations? Or is community capacity being built with this public investment? Do you see new intermediary conditions creating organizations in these communities or are they the usual suspects and they'll just hire a few people? So what what are we doing here? Is 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 the benefit or the opportunity ignoring to uh, the benefit of the incumbents and those who are well placed? Because that's what it's been to date. It's hard to find Local strategy. And strategy is important because it's hard to get investment without strategy. In so many meetings, and this is a personal experience I'll share with you. You know, in some cases you hear no justice, no peace. I have a mantra, uh, uh, um, uh, no, no investment before strategy, right? And essentially, I've been in meetings where we all talk that talk and the civic and corporate leaders talk that talk, David. And then the talk is so good, someone will pound the table and say, well, we know what the problems are. Let's just get to work. And so we all run out and just get to work. You feel me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's not how we do it in the innovation space no. and in the big time. We don't do anything without real strategy. I can't find a thoughtful strategy that can inform not just the regional strategy, thumbs up, but how communities connect into the regional strategy, contribute to the regional strategy, be able to extract contribute value and extract value from the regional strategy. It's a lot of the incumbents are getting bigger and fatter, but communities aren't. Yeah, I guess they can do some of the work, but they certainly can't do all the work. Well, uh, I might have a, a reason, but it might be uh, a lazy reason because it might not be a robust line of thought. But what I've found in communities that have robust local strategies, they have a powerful convener, somebody that truly understands where we are going, but is not part of the competition. See, the problem with local economies is that everybody is fighting for the same pool of money. And therefore, there isn't a way to convene because everybody, I mean, I'm here in Tampa. I see this play out in Tampa, which is a very small market where there are so many players all competing for the same resources without a leader and a visionary that can come in and help convene the community because everybody that raises their hand to be a leader, guess what? They're competing for the same dollars right. and therefore they are not, they don't have credibility to help lead the way. And I've seen markets when they've had a good leader, Detroit coming out of the 2008 automobile crisis um, led by uh, 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 a wonderful lady by the name of Pam Lewis. Um, oh, I know uh, Pam. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was with the Southeast Michigan Community Foundation. Yep. New Economy Project. Yep. The wonderful. New Economy Initiative. Yep. 
Yeah, New Economy Initiative. They created a blueprint over a decade that created uh, and actually revitalized uh, downtown and inner city and parts of Detroit and did it through data and through convening. And they even put out a blueprint of how cities can do this. Mm -hmm. And what was remarkable in the pandemic, we were in several cities at the forefront helping people in the front lines. Detroit didn't have to blink an eye because they were built for resiliency. They were Mm -hmm. built in a downturn, so they're built for resiliency. So they could, when the pandemic hit, they didn't have to go find a way to convene. They were already convening. They already had neighborhood work councils. They already had the infrastructure set up to be able to quickly address major challenges. And the impact, actually, I think Brookings put out a report after that, how Detroit was actually able to recover so much faster than other cities. Mm-hmm. And that is what I mean by when I say, and that's why I said my answer, my answer might be a little lazy in the sense that it doesn't provide the framework for what it truly can be because it might seem arbitrary. But I think when there isn't the vision and the leadership in local communities, you can't have a strategy because the strategy is not really bringing people together. It's what you said. Let's go out and let's all write a grant report or let's all go out there and find money. (laughs) Right. That's exactly right. Great example and great story from your own experience, David. Um, Underneath that, I guess what really continues to stick in my craw is let's take the example of the 501c3 economic development organization. Not the C4 or C6, but the C3. Now, the C, these C3 organizations, many of them, particularly in the innovation space, their address is in a you know, downtown or a zip code that's underserved. But economic development in and of itself is not charitable. It's not. Beneficiary of economic development that can fit one of the criterias makes it charitable. So you don't get any metrics from these underserved populations. Your address is there. You don't really impact them, but you enjoy the advantage of the C3 designation. How do you how do you deal with that? How do you answer that question? So you so the terrible demographics that exist around you empower you to win a C3 designation and then put you in position for government, philanthropic and other uh, resources. But those who actually comprise that poor demographic don't ever benefit from it. That's what I'm talking about. I'm going to ask you two questions and I'm going to give you my thought on your comment while um, I set you up for these two questions. One, what would you tell an emerging practitioner of economic development uh, as an area they should focus on? Or what would you give them as advice? And two, what is that next big thing you're working on? So I'm going to ask you those two questions. Uh, but before that, I'll tell you that uh, you're spot on about the 501c3s. And the reason um, a lot of them uh, kind of fail at the fundamental test is because a lot of them have not been entrepreneurs. Like if you are an entrepreneur who starts at 51C3, you would be deeply empathetic for the journey and the story of the people you serve, knowing that to have walked in their shoes, you know, was an incredible and hard journey. And a lot of them haven't done that. I feel like a lot of the 51C3s that I work with that don't have 
an entrepreneurship background uh, don't understand the fundamentals of what it takes to support entrepreneurs. Two, they don't eat their own dog food. They have never built a business model canvas. They have never done customer discovery. They don't understand product market fit. And you could be starting a dry cleaning business. And these fundamentals are still true to you. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, they don't understand cash flow. So when you don't understand the mechanics of what it takes to actually support your community, but then you've applied and won all these dollars, how do you then create the impact that you need? And, and that for me is that big question where I've seen too many times the entrepreneur is not at the center of that journey. Yep. And, and that's a shame because there could be so much more that could be done if you understood who you serve. And so that's an, an aside and, you know, just an observation, but let's get back to, to your story. And so, you know, looking back, what would your advice be to an emerging or an art, or because you can't go to school for this stuff, right? I have looked into it. There's no way you go to school. You can get certifications at the industry, et cetera. But you know, what practical advice would you give somebody entering this, this field? Tell the truth. This life is not easy. And what the life of an entrepreneur, the uh, achieving uh, social and economic mobility are not, uh, you just don't wake up and roll out of bed and, and you become social. Most of us, some of us might, most of us don't do that. And tell the truth. Tell the truth about the journey. I'm a former football uh, player and I remember a coach telling me one day, I can coach you all day, but I can't play for you. I can provide a great stadium, coach you the best, but when that ball snaps, I'm on the sideline. You have to play. And that's just an, again, ethic of expectation. I don't hear as much of that as I used to growing up about that ownership and accountability. You know, I just don't. Tell the truth. Secondly, I would advise them that um, uh, uh, if you know more, offer more. This is what I mean. So many conversations I've been a part of um, that, you know, leadership will say things like, we're going to listen to the community. Of course, you're going to listen to the community. That's, a, that's not even worth saying. Of course you are. But here's where I have a problem. Because when you only listen to the community, communities that, like I told you, I'm one of the happening guys, right? And this stuff was happening right in front of my face and it was invisible. So imagine those who are even further distant from it as well. This economy, this innovation space, this high growth space, it's invisible to those disconnected from it. So if you're thinking the community is going to demand access to an invisible economy, it's not going to happen. But if you know better, you absolutely listen to communities. But if you know more, as you listen, offer more. And we haven't offered these opportunities to underserved communities in the way that I would hope we would. That's consistent with building a, a more competitive and more inclusive nation as well. So, yeah, tell the truth. And if you know more, offer more. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I don't think anybody's put it out so simple and succinctively. So uh, next question, 
what's the next big thing you're working on? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, and I'm happy to share. Got a couple of uh, things at this point in my career. I'm I'm uh, in pursuit of the next thing, uh, the kind of opportunity where I can bring to bear the entirety of an interdisciplinary career that spans social and human services to tech and innovation and entrepreneurship and capital formation and community and innovation, all of that, and bring it to bear. To some, my career might not make sense because it's not linear. But I believe humbly, of course, that it's exactly what this moment calls for, an inter a multi and interdisciplinary approach to developing more talent and more entrepreneurs from wraparound supports for entrepreneurs to apprenticeship programs to build ownership of assets as well. So I'm interested in my next chapter to be a leadership opportunity to bring to bear the entirety of my career. I'm not sure it's out there. But I'm certainly on the hunt for it. <laughs> wow, that's that's brilliant. And uh, I think uh, there's so much, like you said, like in terms of what you've seen that very few people get to see, yeah. right? You've kind of built a career that is so diverse and has had so many different perspectives. So I am excited to see what you're going to do next. Thank you. Uh, and, I am too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would love to bring you back I'm so grateful for your time and for sharing so openly with us uh, and sharing things that that you've seen from a unique lens that our practitioners can really benefit from. Uh, again, our goal is to kind of move this field forward through thought leadership and sharing through people who have been there, done that, uh, so that people can do better, right? If you know more, you can do more. That's, that's right. That's where we're taking this, that when they know more, they will do more. David, uh, and here's to you and your team, a hospitable team to be making it a comfortable discussion. Uh, and you give energy, so you certainly will receive energy. I've enjoyed it and look forward to our next chat. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.